Hello, and welcome to the 2023 Critical Care Congress edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Marilyn Bullock. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Mitchell Levy, who is at MCCM and SCCP, to discuss the AIMS trial, Hour One versus Three Hour Bundle, which bundle will win? Dr. Levy is Chief in the Division of Critical Care, Pulmonary, and Sleep Medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University, where he's a professor of medicine. He's also, in his abundant free time, the Medical Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome, Dr. Levy. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? I have some NIH funding from a T32 and my recent R01 that we're about to talk about, and I'm on the advisory board of Inatrem and Endpoint. Thank you for letting us know that. So I read the AIMS trial overview on clinicaltrials.gov. It looks fascinating. I think it'll provide us a lot of good information, and it's got a little bit of a different design to it. It's a hybrid type 2 implementation study. What is that for people who may not be familiar with that design? Yeah, it's a great question. So a hybrid type two implementation effectiveness trial, it's a combination of the implementation. So an implementation science aspect and effectiveness aspect. So the three aims, if you will, of the study, the first aim is to improve implementation in general of the sepsis SEP1 bundle. So that's a three-hour sepsis bundle. The second aim is to compare the effectiveness of the hour one bundle versus the three-hour bundle. So the hour one bundle we published in 2018 in Critical Care Medicine, and it was founded on the idea that antibiotics are already recommended within the first hour. We already recommend if patients are hypotensive that we start fluids within the first hour. We recommend that you get lactate as soon as you see a patient. And so we realized in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Steering Committee, gee, why aren't we just making this, as soon as you see a patient and you suspect sepsis, just give them all of the elements of the bundle. And that was the genesis of the Hour One bundle. And then the final aim of the study is Chris Seymour is one of the co-investigators on the trial. And we're going to use Chris's data that he published in JAMA to generate phenotypes. Because the idea would be, okay, let's see first, uh, and most important is hour one versus three-hour bundle. Second is improving compliance overall with the three-hour bundle. And the third is, what if there are a couple of phenotypes that specifically respond to bundles more than the others? And so it seems like that would be hypothesis generating so that the next trial would be, okay, maybe it's not hour one, maybe generate the phenotypes first, and then that will put us in the ballpark of perhaps one phenotype or two respond preferentially more than the others. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I remember back when I was a resident, one of the first things I heard at a critical care congress like where we're at is that in the ICU, we have to not only practice evidence-based medicine, but we have to practice evidence-based individualized medicine. And that's something I've tried to share with my medical and my pharmacy students since then. And so the fact that some of that data may come out of this trial, I think, is really beneficial to us in our world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think You know, this idea that one size fits all, none of us really believe that one size fits all, right? But the idea behind the campaign and behind step one is 
how about a minimal data set? Now, if we can find that that minimal data set works better in certain populations, that's even better. Now, let me ask you this. The three-hour bundle has been adopted by lots of regulators. Before the current version of the guidelines came out, we were all teaching and at least clinically going, I know this is what the regulations say, but use the one hour anyway for outpatient outcomes. Where did the idea come practically in terms of comparing the two now? That's a great question. And honestly, so there was a huge uproar from the emergency department community. And if this were not a podcast, I would show some of the slides that the ED, there's a couple of ED bloggers, and we've been compared to the Death Star. What is it? Less fake news, more real news. I mean... I've seen some of those blogs. kind of like funny, right? That... I mean, I'm, I'm flattered in a certain way, but the ED community, and I think understandably so, because the ED community, because the three-hour bundle was adopted by CMS as national mandated metrics for CEP1, they rightfully worried, oh boy, so now is the hour one bundle going to be adopted by CMS? And are we just on this slippery slope so that we're never going to be compliant? And I think that's what empowered us to write the grant. And I also think, honestly, that's the case we made in the grant to NHLBI that this answer is really needed because is our one bundle better? Is it three hours? And can we achieve our one? And so I think it's a really important question. And you bring up a good point in terms of like the emergency medicine. Sometimes I feel like they're stuck with the core measures and they're just trying to help the hospital survive. And right. we've seen other core measures than pneumonia and antibiotic one being where everybody got antibiotics. You got yeah. heart failure, but you had short of breath. You're going to get an antibiotic. And so these could have very big downstream effects, which I want to talk to you about in just a little bit. But first... You're studying in the AIMS trial specifically the emergency department. You're not yes. studying people who get septic on the floor Correct. or anywhere else. How did you decide, let's just focus on the emergency department? Yes. So we published in the New England Journal, Chris Seymour was the lead author. I was the senior author, just emergency department patients in the New York State database. I think it was like 70,000 patients. We used that. And these are patients who had the three-hour bundle. And we looked at those patients and we said, okay, what happens when they are compliant with all the elements of the bundle within one hour. And we were able to demonstrate a pretty significant survival benefit. And so we felt it is much more challenging to identify time zero. The moment someone gets sepsis, you know, now it's sepsis and used to be severe sepsis. When does that happen on the wards? And is it really just based on a chart? And especially because there are alerts that key in on two out of four SERS, we thought it would be easier to identify the patients in the emergency department rather than in the wards or in the ICU. Do you think the data will still be able to be extrapolated to those patient populations, or do you think we're going to have to do an AIMS-2 trial? That's a great question. No, I think they'll be able to be extracted. The challenge is, as I just said, identifying those patients. I do think if we can demonstrate that when someone walks in the door of the emergency department, If you give them all of the bundle elements in one hour versus three hours, and it's more efficacious, statistically significant, then I think a lot of people would make the case, well, then we should be doing this on the wards and in the intensive care unit. There's nothing specific to ED patients versus wards 
versus ICU, other than they just don't get recognized as quickly. But I do think that the impetus would then be to identify these patients more quickly. I think that's going to be a good conversation to have once the trial's over because, yes. you know, sometimes people get so focused in on the study environment and the exact patient population that they forget how to extrapolate data to other avenues. But you did make a very good point that there's really not that much difference in terms of when they develop sepsis and the pathophysiology exactly. behind it. Yeah. Now, one of the things that we struggle with where I live, I'm sure you probably do too, is compliance. I know compliance nationally when CMS reports is what around 60%. It's not it's 60. not great. And that's probably much better than before CMS said you had to yeah, right. do it. So I imagine there's going to be some research challenges, particularly with the individual study sites. What kind of challenges do you anticipate and how are you going to overcome those? Well, it's a great question. And honestly, even in my own hospital right now, we're trying to figure out how do we get clinicians to just accept the SEC1 bundle? And there's always a reason not to give it. Oh, this patient has end-stage renal disease. Oh, this patient has a cardiomyopathy. And I'm not really sure that they have sepsis. Whereas a lot of the third-party payers like Blue Cross Blue Shield and others are actually now making the SEC1 bundle part of their performance measures so that there will be a holdback for hospitals that are not in compliance. We also know that SEP1 is being incorporated into the value-based purchasing arm of CMS, which means before they were just doing mandated reporting, but now they're going to do pay-for-performance. And so people are going to have to figure out how to improve compliance. And, you know, part of the problem is, look, if you really think this bundle, these fluids, these antibiotics are going to hurt your patient, don't give them. But if you're doing it routinely and there's always an excuse not to give fluids and there's always an excuse not to give the antibiotics, you have to sort of second guess yourself. Because the question is, I think the data really supports the use of the bundles. And that's why CMS has adopted the bundles. So if you're constantly making an excuse why you don't want to give fluids or antibiotics, you have to question yourself a little bit. I mean, obviously somebody who doesn't passionately believe in fluids or something like that probably won't participate, but Gassy's a big team. There's a lot of people involved. How are you going to overcome that at the individual sites? Right. So I will tell you that for just using my site as an example, and we're one of the sites in the trial. So we track our compliance on a regular basis. And my division, Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep, we have a certain amount of support that comes from the hospital and $100,000 of that support is held back and we have to apply quality indicators to that $100,000 holdback every year. We're now talking about doing the same thing for every division. So whether it's pulmonary critical care or surgery, because the failure nodes, they're in the neurocritical care unit, they're on the ward. So we are about to embark on holdbacks for physicians so that they don't really have a choice but to comply and that their salaries could depend on it. And I honestly feel like the data strongly suggests that if your compliance is higher, more people survive. Therefore, I think we have to hold physicians accountable for their performance. What about the other disciplines? I'm a pharmacist, for example, right. now, and I've, I've passionately believe in, you know, timely administration of stuff, but I know that sometimes I train physicians and sometimes it's not their fault. You know, sometimes they write the orders and 
it doesn't get done or it's hard to get other disciplines to give the fluids in time or to get the antibiotics in or to get the lab, to get the lactate reported. So how do you overcome that kind of well, stuff? Well, that's a really great question because what we can do is start to track where are the failure modes. So that's a pretty traditional implementation science aspect, which is, okay, we're trying to achieve five elements, let's say. And where are the failures? So you have to write the order. Then the nurse has to administer the antibiotic. Then the nurse has to administer the fluids. So where are the failure modes? What's the time between writing the order and administering it? And those are the kind of things that we'll start to study during the trial. After the baseline data collection phase, there is the implementation phase, which is each site, each arm rather, will be randomized to either hour one or three hours, and there'll be two collaborative phone calls per month. We will then give each site information on their performance, and that will be the subject of these calls, which is, okay, you're failing the antibiotics. So where are the failing modes? So let's look at how long it takes from writing the order to getting the antibiotics administered. And if it turns out that it's really the time it takes from after the order is written and it's to, to it being started, that's a completely different than not writing it. Same thing for fluids. If it turns out that you just don't have the right fluids in your emergency department, you write the order, but they're not available, then that's what needs to be addressed. So we're hoping to target where the failure modes is and then move to improve it. That's such an important piece I feel like sometimes is missing when the people who have to report this to CMS and they extrapolate it, they don't get that. They they yeah. just say, well, we're not doing this and we never go back and we yeah. look at the why. So yeah. I think that that piece to me sounds not only just a research part, but good quality assurance yeah. and background in it. So I'm happy to hear that. Now we've talked a little bit about this, but I'm hoping maybe you can take it one step further CMS sort of adopted this almost around the time that we initially got rid of SIRS when we went to QSOFA or new guidelines came out and CMS is a lot slower to change than we are. And then, of course, a lot of us know about New York and then making it part of the law. What do you think, and again, this is kind of speculation, the potential regulatory implications could be from research like your study? Well, if it turns out that hour one is more efficacious than the three hour, I mean, it's too soon to say, but I would imagine that if it turns out there's no difference, then step one will stay the same. I think that if it does turn out that administering all of these things within one hour makes a difference in terms of mortality and respiratory failure, then we're going to be hard pressed not to change the step one to one hour. I say that with trepidation just because I know how nervous it makes people. But remember, it's two out of four SERs, organ dysfunction, and a physician noting that there's sepsis. So that's what creates time zero in CMS. In a lot of places that have EPIC, when you write the order for antibiotics, it says, where do you suspect the infection? So that will count as a physician notation of suspected sepsis. So if I write amoxicillin, and it comes up and I write skin. That's a note already. So I think this process is going to encourage people to be more compliant 
with identifying a time zero more rapidly. And I think it, we've talked about the quality assurance piece with it. I would just maybe, as a practical standpoint, I think if that were to happen and step one were to have to move to the one hour bundle, the data that you're collecting on where were the holes, where did things fail, I think is going to be even more valuable yeah. to the everyday hospital yep. out there that's just struggling to do it, the three hour bundle right now. Now, let me ask you this. What if there is no difference? I know we have a lot of data on the three hours, but I can hear critics saying, well, does it really have to be three hours? Could we push it back a little bit? Oh, is, yeah. You know, is there well, any thought sure. about that down the road? Well, I mean, I think that that's a fascinating question. If the hour one versus three hour trial is negative, will people now say, well, then we should wait till six hours? Honestly, the data are pretty clear in the literature that the sooner you do compliance, the better. And I just showed it in this talk that I just gave here, which is the odds ratio of dying goes up in a linear fashion for every hour delay. So just think about it from a practical point of view. What would you want for your loved one? You would want to know that we're going to give you the antibiotics, fluids, get a blood culture, like as soon as possible. And that's what the origin of the hour one is. So I think people are going to be hard pressed to say, well, since one versus three didn't make a difference, let's wait till six. Right. Now, I know this is going to be a little bit hard and this may not be an aim at the current moment. But again, assuming that there maybe there's no difference, I have always felt and the literature supports it, the sooner you get antimicrobials in the better. And, and I say antimicrobials because I, I like viruses and I yeah. see that. So yeah. not just antibiotics, but the patient is more likely to get better. Their mortality goes down. But if there's no difference between the two, is there any plan to look at the individual components to see if maybe there is a difference among those? Yeah, inevitably we will. We have them as secondary outcomes. Right. So certainly we will look at that. And, and you also bacterial versus viral, right? So There'll be a lot of papers that will come out of this that will look at subpopulations of patients. And I will tell you that when we've looked in the past and tried to say, well, what about four out of six? We've never been able to find a combination that has a louder signal than all or nothing compliance. And it's hard to get all or nothing compliance because you've got to do all the things in the right order. But We've never been able to find, oh, well, if you give antibiotics and fluids, it doesn't matter what you do otherwise. We've not been able to find that. That's interesting. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. My final question for you, you know, this is something that obviously it's on everybody's mind, not only just because we like sepsis, we're critical care practitioners, even those who don't love sepsis, the government is telling us we have to think about this. So when are we going to know more? When will we have this data? Oh, when will you have the data? So we finish the baseline data collection June 30th of 2023. Then we'll start a 30-month implementation phase, and then we'll do another six months of data collection. So 30 months, it's going to be probably 2025 before we get the results of this trial. Okay, so we've got a little bit of time yes. to wait. Maybe, yeah. we'll, maybe we'll hear some trickles between yeah. there. I don't know. You may have it locked up pretty good. I think so. <laughs> I hope so. It's a randomized controlled trial. So. All right. That's my last question for you. But before we go, I just want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else you want to say about this trial for our listeners? I'm very excited that the NHLBI funded the trial. I think a lot of us, just as you've said, Marilyn, really want to know the answer to this. And so I'm excited to be able to answer it. We'll see.
That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being My here. Pleasure. So this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. For the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast, I'm Marilyn Bullock, and thank you for joining us. Marilyn N. Bullock, PharmD, BCPS, FCCM, is an associate clinical professor and director of strategic operations at Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy. She is also an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Family, Internal, and Rural Medicine at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, USA, and the University of Alabama, Birmingham School of Medicine. This podcast was recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 2023 Critical Care Congress. Access essential education online through Congress Digital. More than 120 sessions are available on an easy-to-use platform. Continuing education credit is also available. Some SCCM members receive complimentary access to Congress Digital. To learn more, visit sccm.org slash congressdigital. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.